Last week, we started a brand new sermon series called The Life of Joseph, Why Evil Can't Thwart God's Promises. Love the story of Joseph. And last week, we started with Genesis chapter 37, and we saw that Joseph's brothers hate him so much that they decide to sell him to slave traders who are going to take him to Egypt and, and sell him into slavery. So at the end of chapter 37, finished up, we got there last week, we're all wondering what's going to happen to, to Joseph, and we're ready to look at chapter 38 to learn more about what happens to Joseph, but then we discover when we start reading chapter 38 that Joseph isn't even mentioned in this chapter. Judah is mentioned in this chapter. We don't hear anything about Joseph until the beginning of Genesis chapter 39. So kind of a big question I want us to raise this morning is, why does the author, Moses, why does Moses take this pause, this parenthesis in the story of Joseph and devote one chapter to Joseph? And I just need to warn you, this is a, this is a difficult chapter. This is, um, it, there's a lot of sin. It's kind of graphic. Um, but Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this chapter, and it plays a crucial function in the life of Joseph, as I hope we will see as we study it. So to help us figure out what's going on in this chapter, let's ask, what does Moses emphasize in verses 1 through 5? Let's just start there, focus on this little chunk. What does he emphasize? Start with verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So there's a woman whose father is named Shua. This woman was a Canaanite. He took her and went into her. It means he married her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Hesiv when she bore him. As I looked at these verses, it seemed to me that in verses 1 and 2, Moses is emphasizing Judah's sinfulness. Here's what I see. See if you see this as well. First, Moses says that Judah went down from his brothers. He's, he's leaving his family, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, that's not a good sign because everywhere else is just godlessness. Second, Moses says that Judah turned aside to a certain Adulamite named Hira. Adulamites were Canaanites. Canaanites, for those of you who know, were a godless, wicked, idolatrous people. So Judah here has left his family, left the people of Israel, left the people of God, and he's, he's associating himself with this Adulamite, this godless man. Third, Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Now that's not good because remember back in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for Isaac, Abraham's son, he says to the servant, do not take a wife for him from the people around here. Go back to my extended family. Find a wife for him there, godly people there because the, the Canaanites surrounding Abraham were not godly people. So in verses 1 and 2, there's this emphasis on Judah's sinfulness. And then in verses 3 through 5, the emphasis is on Judah and his wife having three sons. Now, I, I like to do genie or like family tree pictures. 
Let's do that. Look at that. Okay, so here's, this is, I'm a simple man. I got to have things. Out. Anyway, Judah, his Canaanite woman, wife, and then three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Now, we know from earlier in Genesis that God's plan is to multiply the seed of Abraham, the people of Israel, so they are as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the sky. Remember those passages? A number of them up to this point. And so we, readers of Genesis, we're excited to see the people of Israel multiply because then God is going to have the Messiah be born from those people. So we're waiting to see this promise. And so we're wondering, okay, three sons, all right, to Judah and his Canaanite wife, what's going to happen to these three sons? Let's ask that as our next question. What happens to Judah's three sons? And it's shocking. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, second son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, let me explain what's going on here. In the Old Testament, if a man died, leaving his wife a widow who's childless, then that man's next brother in line would be obligated to marry the brother who died, his widow, and raise up children. And the first son would be carrying the name of the brother who died to honor him. That was the practice that took place in the Old Testament. So that's what Judah is asking the second son, Onan, to do. Marry Tamar, raise up a child, a son, to honor heir. But look at what Onan does. Verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And he put him to death also. Wow. So Ur commits wickedness, put to death. Onan commits wickedness, put to death. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he, Shelah, would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You know, in the previous verses, verses 1 through 2, Moses emphasizes Judah's sinfulness, but now he's focusing on Judah's sons, the first two sons, their wickedness. We aren't sure what heir the firstborn did. Um, We do know what Onan did and why he was put to death. So here's the family tree to catch up on what's going on, okay? We have Judah and the Canaanite woman, all right? And then we have heir and Onan killed by God. Shelah is still alive. And um, Again, we're, we're hoping that there's going to be a multiplying of God's people. We've been careful readers of Genesis. We know this is God's plan. We want to see the Messiah born. We want to see God's people multiplying like the sand of the seashore. So we're wondering, so what's going to happen with, with Shelah and, and Tamar? What's going to take, take place here? Now, Judah says he wants to wait till Shelah gets older because he doesn't want Shelah to die like his other 
brothers. I'm not sure how, how that works. Um, and Moses doesn't tell us. He just kind of lets that hang out there, so we aren't really sure what exactly um, Judah is thinking, but we will learn more in a moment. But let's ask the question, what happens with Shelah and Tamar? Tamar. And look at verses 12 through 23. This is not pretty. The picture just keeps getting worse and worse. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So this is Judah's wife, Canaanite wife. She dies. When Judah was comforted, that is when he had had the set time for mourning, when that was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. That's never, it's not a good thing here. This is a bad thing. Hira is not helpful. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah, the third son, was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Judah had not fulfilled his promise. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So the Canaanites had what's called cult prostitutes or temple prostitutes were involved in their worship, which was just really sinful and wicked, and, and that's what Judah thought. This, she was all covered up. He thought this was a cult prostitute temple prostitute. He was interested in this prostitute. Verse 16, he turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, so until you get the goat to me, give me a pledge, something in the meantime. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat, like he'd promised, by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at Enayim by the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. Judah was afraid he'd be laughed at because, as I read, a, a goat is a lot more, worth a lot more. I'm sorry, no, the things, the ring and the cord and the st stick were worth a lot more than a goat, and it looks like she'd outfoxed him in some way or outwitted him. Anyway, he just wanted to put the kibosh on it. Let's not talk about this anymore. Let it be gone. But, but think about what's, what's happening here. Time has gone on. Tamar realizes that Judah is never going to give her Shelah as, his, as her wife, as, as her husband. So she decides to stand by the road dressed like a prostitute to see if Judah will respond. Now, why does Tamar do that? 
I mean, we can guess, and commentators have all kinds of different reasons. Um, I'm not sure, I mean, Moses doesn't tell us why. It's better to focus on the things that Moses does tell us than to try to conjecture about things he doesn't say, so I just don't think we know. I'm not sure it's that important to understand the point that Moses is trying to make here. So she does go out in the road, see if, if uh, Judah's going to respond. He does respond. She doesn't know that she's his daughter-in-law. Um, he thinks she's just one of the temple prostitutes. So he says he'll pay her a goat. She wants a pledge. A signet ring would be a ring by which Judah would be identified. The cord probably was tied to the ring, maybe fastened around his neck, and then he had his walking stick. So that's what he gives her as a, as a pledge. And then later he sends Hira to take her the goat. No temple prostitute's been around here. Hira brings the word back. So Tamar keeps the signet ring and the cord and the stick. Okay, now, what's going on in this chapter up to this point? So we're, we want to hear about Joseph. What's happening to Joseph in Egypt, right? I mean, what's all this about? What, what's going on in this chapter? Well, so far, the main emphasis of the author Moses has been Judah's terrible sinfulness. And now to add on to that, he has sexual relations with a Canaanite temple prostitute. That's who he thinks she is. So Judah is just, his, his sin is just being portrayed. He was the one who back in chapter 37 thought, let's sell Joseph and make some money. And now his sinfulness is just continuing through this chapter. So the theme so far is Judah's terrible sinfulness. So let's ask, what ends up happening to Judah? It's amazing what ends up happening to Judah. Verses 24 to 26 sets the stage. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah and he did not know her again. Okay, so Judah hears that Tamar's had sexual relations with someone, not her husband. He says this is immoral. He was right that it was immoral. He was wrong in the harsh sentence of burning, but he was right that it was, it was immoral. But Tamar was smart. She'd gotten the pledge, the signet ring, the cord, and the stick, right? And so she brought this out, and she said, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these belong. Judah, who do these belong to? And, uh, of course, it was obvious to Judah and to everyone else that it was Judah who had slept with her, and that's how she got pregnant. So now he knows he was not having sex with a temple prostitute, but with his, his daughter-in-law. But then he says something surprising. This is a very interesting. Instead of blaming her, he takes the blame upon himself. He says, Tamar has been more righteous than me since I did not keep my promise. I did not give her to Shelah as I had, had promised. So notice, first of all, Judah admits that he had done wrong. 
So the question is, is this genuine repentance before God or is this just publicly owning up to what's obvious to everybody? Yeah, I, I, I did it. I thought she was a prostitute, no big deal. Or was this genuine repentance before God? At first, I didn't think it was genuine repentance before God. But the more I looked, I think it, I think it was powerful, deep repentance before God. And, there, and there's five reasons that I, that I found. Now, think about this very carefully. I want you to see this, not just because I'm, it's my conclusion. I want you to see this in the text for yourself. I hope to persuade you all that this is genuine repentance here. So here's five reasons why I think this is genuine repentance. First reason is in verse 26, he confesses more sin than he needs to. Did you catch that? He could have just said, yes, I committed sexual sin, had sex with a prostitute. Canaanites don't really worry about that all that much, obviously. He could have said, I own it. But he also confesses what he didn't need to, that he had not kept his promise to give Shelah to Tamar as her husband. So the fact that he confesses more sin than he needed to shows he's not just kind of doing the minimum he needs to to kind of get out of an awkward situation. He's coming forth with his sin. Do you see that? It's very significant. Second, another reason, in verse 26, he says, Tamar is more righteous than me. He's admitting wrongdoing, and that's a sign of humility. It's a good sign. We haven't seen this in Judah up to this point. Third, another reason is, at the end of verse 26, Moses says that Judah did not know Tamar sexually again. And it's clear from the way that Moses writes this that this is a good thing. This is a good thing that Judah has, is doing or doesn't do. Fourth reason, how different Judah is from this point on in the book of Genesis. Big change takes place here in, in Judah. I won't tell you the whole story. We'll be getting to that in terms of how, going down to Egypt and the famine and the seven fat years and the seven lean years and all that. But in the next chapters, we see Judah confessing publicly that he is guilty before God for selling Joseph into slavery. He owns that guilty before God. It's a Godward confession. And we see Judah being willing to stay in Egypt so that Benjamin can go back home, the youngest son, to be with his father. So we see a change taking place or having taken place in Judah. Now, there's a fifth reason. At the end of Jacob's life, Jacob is Judah's father. At the end of Jacob's life, he speaks final words to each of his sons in the order of their birth. This is in Genesis chapter 49. Very important chapter. And the first four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, have all committed wickedness. They've all done wrong. The first three receive words of judgment. Judah does not. Judah receives a final word of blessing. Amazing blessing. Let me show you. Let's start with this final word that Jacob gives to Reuben. This is in Genesis 49, 3 and 4. Reuben had sinned by sleeping with one of Jacob's wives. Okay, and listen to what Jacob says to his firstborn son, Reuben. Reuben you are my firstborn, my might, 
and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. That's what should have belonged to the firstborn. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So the status, the preeminence of being firstborn taken away from Reuben, a word of judgment. Simeon and Levi, numbers two and number three, they had sinned terribly by deceiving and murdering the people of the men of Shechem. And look at what Jacob says to them. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. Whoa, that's strong. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now realize the reason that Jacob is speaking these words is that this is what God is giving to him to speak to these sons. So again, we have Simeon and Levi who had done wickedness, and they receive a word of judgment. Do you see that? So Reuben, word of judgment, Simeon and Levi, word of judgment. But what about Judah? Judah has committed wickedness. Chapter 37, it was his idea to sell Joseph to slave traders. He's moving away from the people of Israel. He's joining up with an Adulamite. He marries a Canaanite woman. He has sexual relations with a, who he thinks is a temple prostitute. He doesn't keep his promise to Tamar. Sin, 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 sin. So what's the word to Judah? Listen carefully. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Okay, that means he is being elevated to the position of firstborn. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. He's a mighty warrior. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? He's a mighty warrior. The scepter, now that, that's kingship. That's political authority and rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. That means Israel's kings are going to be born from the line of Judah. That's what's being said here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Israel's kings are going to be in the line of Judah, but now who is this king going to be who's going to receive tribute from all the peoples and obedience from all the peoples? Who is that king? It's Jesus Christ. This is another prophecy of the Messiah foretold back in the book of Genesis. And what is being said here is that the Messiah is going to be born in the line of Judah. So this, these final words to Judah is just full of blessing, astonishing blessing. Simeon, Levi, Reuben had all sinned and received judgment. Judah had sinned and received blessing. And I think what that shows is just, again, a fifth reason, going all the way back now to Genesis 38, is a fifth reason for why 
His confession was genuine, humble confession before God. He was owning his sinfulness. He was humbling himself before God. He was turning away saying, help me. He was looking to the Messiah, looking to what would happen when the Messiah came, paying for sin. He was trusting what God would do through the Messiah to make forgiveness possible. And of course, as you know, Jesus came and he died on the cross. He paid for the sins of all who would trust him. And so years before Jesus died on the cross, when Judah puts his trust in what the Messiah would do, Judah's sins were all punished Moved ahead, punished in Jesus. That's how Jesus' death works. You understand that, right? Jesus' death pays for our sins after he died, and it pays for the sins of those who trusted what God would do through the Messiah before he died. So Judah's sins were paid for in Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let's look back at Genesis 38. We're asking what happened to Judah. We'd seen this, this theme of sin all the way through the chapter, but now we see Judah genuinely repenting before God. Now, there's one more loose end to the story. Tamar is pregnant with Judah's offspring. So what offspring are born then to Judah? We want to know that. And the answer is amazing. Verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one of the twins put out a hand And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. So this looks like this one's going to be the firstborn. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez ended up being the firstborn. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So Perez ends up being the firstborn, Zerah not the firstborn. Why is this important? Here's what I think Moses wants us to be feeling at this point. I mean, just think, think about how, how ugly the sin has been in this chapter. It's, it's a difficult chapter to preach. I'm sure it's a different chapter to have be preached. This is a difficult chapter for us as a church. It's just full of just like, oh, do we really need to hear about this sin, 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 sin? It's, it's an ugly chapter and Judah has sinned terribly culminating in having sex with who he thinks is a temple prostitute it's his daughter-in-law she gets pregnant and gives birth to Perez and Zerah so who are Perez and Zerah who are these twins the answer is in Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew lists Jesus genealogy now listen to this this is astonishing Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, there's Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and then you skip some verses, skip some generations until you get to verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is amazing. Think of Judah's sin. Again, this chapter's been full of Judah's sin and wickedness. Full of just sin, wickedness. But Judah 
repents. Judah confesses this, Father, I've sinned. I've sinned against you. Forgive me. I'm trusting in what you are going to do through the Messiah so I can be completely forgiven. Change me. Help me. Judah confesses and humbly repents. And God forgives him completely. All that debt, all of his past sin, all of his present sin, all of his future sin wiped away off the record. No condemnation for Judah because of what Jesus would do on the cross. And not only does God forgive Judah, he has Judah and Tamar become the great, 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 great grandparents of Jesus. Now this is a breathtaking display of mercy, favor, compassion. What kind of God does this? Sends his son in Jesus, God came to earth, died on the cross, God in the flesh, nailed to the cross, hands and feet having been scourged, having been beaten, paying for the sins of this sinful man, Judah, this wicked man, Judah, and forgives him completely and then lavishes grace and favor and blessing and honor upon him. Do you feel, Moses just wants us to be stunned, I mean, when we get to the end of Genesis and see the whole story, at the mercy of God. Now, I said at the beginning, we want to ask the big question, why this parenthesis focusing on Judah? And, and here's what I think the answer is. Remember in Genesis 37, we saw Joseph sold to slave traders by his wicked brothers, including Judah. It was his idea to, to sell him. And then in chapter 38, we see Judah, one of those wicked brothers, continuing in sin. And his sin is terrible. But even though his sin is terrible, Genesis 38 shows us that his sin can't stop God's mercy. The wickedness of Judah's sin, which was wicked, cannot stop God's mercy, which we see as Judah repents and as the story unfolds, God forgives him. So one truth from Genesis 38 is that sin can't stop God's mercy as Judah repents and God forgives him. And we also see that sin can't stop the promise of the Messiah. As we see God working through Judah's sin and Perez being born to Judah and Tamar and Perez ends up being the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. So sin can't stop God's mercy and sin can't stop the promise of the Messiah. Nothing can stop God from forgiving those who repent and trust Christ and nothing can stop God from fulfilling his promise to send the Messiah. That's the parenthesis that Moses wants us to have here in Genesis 37. Whew, there's the chapter, okay? Now, what does this mean for us? I think God has a very important word for us this morning. There's just one takeaway. Confess your sin before God. Confess your sin before God. Maybe for you it's the sin of gossip from this past week. Or maybe you've been jealous about what somebody else has that you don't have. 
Maybe for you it's a lack of prayer, lack of seeking God's face, or maybe just like too much on social media, just wasting, wasting time. Maybe it's loving something else more than Jesus Christ and his glory, or living for something else more than the glory of your Savior. Maybe it's wrong sexual desires. Maybe it's spiritual pride. Maybe it's unforgiveness or love of money, okay, or whatever. I'm just, I've been praying since the last couple of days and this morning that God right now would just be stirring your heart with what sin is it that you haven't confessed. Because we all sin, we've all sinned this morning, and we need to be a confessing, repenting people. Some of you are Judah before he confessed, in sin, facing God's judgments. And nothing's going to change until you confess and repent of your sin. It doesn't make any difference the fact that you're here in church. Going to church doesn't lessen the sin unless you're confessing it and trusting Christ to forgive it. Does that make sense? You can go to church every day, 24 hours a day, and if you aren't confessing your sin, you are guilty before God. So well, yeah, but I, I, I prayed to pray, I prayed a prayer, I was baptized when I was earlier. It doesn't make any difference. If you're not confessing sin, you can't be assured that you were saved back then. Because confession of sin is one of the most clear signs that you are saved. I hope we understand that the sign that you're saved isn't that you're sinless, is that you confess your sin. Are we clear? None of us are sinless here, and lots of us are saved because of Jesus and what he's done in paying for our sins. So I want to call you to confess your sin, that right now you would just say, oh Lord. I mean, it, it may be something you've, you've not been confessing for a long time. This is the time. God brought you here this morning to hear about Genesis 38, to see Judah's repentance and confession so that you would see clearly, I'm like Judah before he confessed. I'm holding on to sin. I'm continuing in sin. I'm not confessing my sin. You are Judah before he confessed. That's a dangerous place to be. But here's the good news. Everything changes when you confess and put your trust in Jesus the Messiah. Everything changes. Think about what Jacob spoke over Judah with those final words. Everything changed for him because of what the Messiah would do for him. So here's my encouragement to you. Confess your sin. Father, I'm sorry. Help me. Change me. I trust Jesus. Jesus, I trust your death on the cross. Thank you for paying for my sin. Thank you for forgiveness. Pour out your spirit. Change me. Fill me. Set me free from this sin. I want to be freed. That's confession. And when you pray that, he will pour out his power upon you. He will pour out his spirit upon you. Your heart will start to change. There'll be fresh joy there, fresh peace there, fresh fullness there. Since pleasures can't compete with the pleasures of having God's spirit poured into your life, he will forgive you, he will bless you, and he will honor you. And you'll be like Joseph, excuse me, like Judah after he confessed his sins. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. I pray that right now you would bring your power upon 
every single one of us here, and Lord, that you would show us any sin that we have not confessed before you, any sin we've not repented of. Right now, you'd show it to us. Please, Lord, don't let anyone continue in deception. Don't let anyone continue blind to this. We know sin can blind, our hearts can deceive. Please, Lord, don't let that happen to anyone here. Show every single one of us here what sin we haven't confessed or repented of, if that's the case. Because you love us, Lord. Show that to us, I pray. And then give us hearts to respond to that and to confess and to repent and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we praise you that when we do that, you forgive us. You wash us clean. You pour out your favor upon us. We are assured that there will never be any condemnation for us. You honor us. You exalt us. What mercy, what glory. That's what you do because of what Jesus has done. So I pray that you would do that right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.